You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's episode of a former U.S. Army member who has a story of survivor's guilt that he's pivoted and turned into his own business and an eventual book. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. Really want to thank you guys for getting on top of our Amazon promotion. Uh, I'm starting to see some major traction there. So please continue to do so. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage, uh, and it'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's a great way to give back to veterans and veterans organizations all across America just by going to hazardground.com first. Also works in your smartphone, really easy and convenient. It'll redirect it to the app. So if you save your credit card information, all that stuff, it's an easy way to uh, to go help out and donate to veterans charities right through Hazard Ground. But again, you got to go to hazardground.com first. Please continue to follow us on other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. And leave the Apple reviews. Uh, we, we get all of them. I see all of them. Uh, and I certainly appreciate all the kind words. But leave a five-star review. Tell us why you love the show. Help grow the Hazard Ground community. It's an algorithm. It's the internet. I don't know what it is. I'm really not smart enough to know what it is. But I do know that the more Apple reviews you leave, the more love we get. And the more they push the show towards the top of uh, podcast on Apple. So we certainly appreciate it. Wherever you get the show, please give us a thumbs up and tell us why you love this show. We certainly appreciate it. All right. Uh, this week's guest spent a total of eight years in the United States army between active duty and the national guard. He, uh, was medically discharged in 2008 as a E five Sergeant. He had one deployment to Iraq in 2005 as well. Uh, he is also a writer for havoc journal, which we've talked a lot about on the show. Uh, our good buddy, Charlie faith, uh, who, who runs the Havoc Journal, certainly, um, you know, it, it puts together some great work, and, and he and I uh, have a great relationship going forward. So Havoc Journal, I wish check them out as well. And he's working on a book called Resolute Path. Currently, he is the founder and owner of Hybrid Wolf Blue Line Strategies, a veteran-owned training and consultant company to share his story here about his survivor's guilt and what happened to him. Uh, he is Iman Koffel joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Iman, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. I truly appreciate it. So I came across your story on Havoc Journal. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I text Charlie immediately. And I said, I, I need this. You know, like it's in written word. <laughs> and there are some really, you know, on Havoc Journal, it's, it's written, but there are some very detailed pictures and very, you know, poignant things that you'll see. And, and I recommend you guys go check it out on HavocJournal.com because it's certainly worth it. But I, I just wanted to hear it in your words because it's, Something I think that resonates with a lot of our audience, you know, the, the idea of survivor's guilt and what you do with it and how you move on from it and how much it carries you. Um, and we'll get to all the, the, the details of, of what had happened in Iraq in 2005 first. But uh, we start at the beginning. How and why did you get in the Army? So um, I was part of the generation after September 11th. Um, you know, I was uh, on my way to college doing the typical college things. Uh, you know, then sure enough, we get attacked and um and I'll never forget, you know, each of us have our own stories of uh, September 11th. And, you know, I'll never forget going back home, watching TV and seeing all the, uh, you know, the destruction and mass casualty that went on. And immediately, um, I've always wanted to join the military, even as a kid growing up. But 
this sort of propelled me, you know, especially more now after the attack. And it wasn't just because also the attack, it's also what I survived as a kid, uh, you know, growing up in two different countries, two different civil wars between Monrovia and, and Lebanon, and then eventually again coming to the United States in 1988. So I saw so much, um, I had so much connection with that. And I was like, oh, no, this is, this is not coming home, essentially, well, because the U.S. is my home. And I said I wasn't going to allow it to come home. And that's why I joined. And uh, the other reason I joined is because um, I'm Lebanese. I speak fluent Arabic. And uh, I felt that uh, I needed to go over there to basically get the bad ones out, out of there. I mean, I, I, I want to try to delicate tread delicately here, but I, I guess I kind of, you know, as, as somebody who is from the Middle East originally and everything else, I, I mean, what is, when all this goes down, how conflicted are you? I mean, you have this, this patriotism, love and pride in America, but obviously your home is your home and where you grew up and, and, you know, uh, the, the bad people in that region of the world and not everybody is bad. I'm not painting bro- yeah. a broad stroke, but you know, I, I guess it's no different from us, you know, school shooters or whatever those are bad people right and, and they're americans yeah. and they're in america and, and and we'd love to get rid of them too is it as easy as that to say that you know those people are not reflective of society as a whole and and you, you just kind of want to eradicate them yeah i mean i mean if you look you know as as the wars progressed and as brutal as they were i'm talking about the enemy as brutal as they were it was not reflective of the way i grew up what i saw you know right. what what you know the 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 common person overseas unfortunately is so much oppression which that's one thing in america that i always talk about is is how uh, how fortunate the citizens are that are not oppressed like they were or they are in, in the middle east and how they live day by day in that fear that big government is at any point can come after you lock you up for no reason just or for speaking your mind and your family will never see you again you know, and and that's the thing where, to me, that's not reflective of society. You know, the 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 society that I know of in in whether it be Lebanon, Monrovia. You know, because in the end, it, every human on earth wants freedom. That's that's you know inherently in our yep you know, in our blood. Yep. So so that that's kind of like my my philosophy and and rationale of of yeah I can separate the two. You know, when I when I when I was over there. I knew who were the bad ones. I knew who were the good ones. Yeah. And again, that's, it's funny. I, I can remember, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but like talking with my interpreter um, who was Palestinian, but born in Iraq. Uh, he was a Palestinian mm-hmm. descendant, born in Iraq. And I remember him having this uncanny ability of looking at him and going, that's a bad guy. Yeah. Like, and I'm sitting there, how do you know? And I look yeah. at him like crazy. I'm like, what do you mean? It, you know, he'd be like, nope, he's okay. He's go. how do you yeah. know? How do you, like, he, trust, he's like, trust me, sir. I know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> if I die, I'm pissed, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, there's, you know, I've got years of training and everything else, and you want me to rely on your gut. I've known you for about four months, and I'm supposed to rely on your gut that all is going to be okay. Uh, yeah. It sort of flies in the face of everything that I was brought up to believe here in the military. But nonetheless, yeah, it was just, it's, it's a, it, I don't know. I, I, I've never had anything like that. Like, I, I can't walk down the street in America and go, that's a good guy and that's a bad guy. You know, like, but it's 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 a sort of unique thing about your culture, about the Middle Eastern culture. It, it's just, I don't know if it you get a sixth sense. Does it smell different? I, I can't explain it, but you guys got it. 
Yeah, that's it. I can't explain it myself where I, I can literally, you know, you know, I'll never forget walking through a couple villages uh, doing my thing, to, uh, collecting intel or whatever I'm doing. And you just I just know, you know, just it's like something clicks in the back of my head. And I'm just like, yeah, that that I don't like that. You know, um, you know, I'll never forget again, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, uh, you know, with my battalion commander, we went far north. I think we were in Kirkuk at the time and he was visiting um, a, a detention center, an Iraqi detention center. And we were walking through and being part of his PSD, uh, personal security detail um, at the time, walking through and, you know, he had IPs all around him. You know, we were talking, chit-chatting. And all I was doing was listening because at the time, there was also another interpreter that was assigned to him, right? So when that happens, I was sort of used as, okay, you're like the wolf in sheep's clothing. Just hang back. And if you see something or hear something, react, you know, act on it. I was like, perfect. So there are times where I didn't really talk. I just listened and just be that, that mole, so to speak, you know, be, be that wolf, like they described me, be that wolf, just kind of standing by. Um, and this, I, I remember this plainclothes guy uh, had, was walking in between us and I, just something did not sit well with me with that. And sure, so it was sure as hell, he reached behind his back, as small as back, I'll not forget it was a Glock. And I scream at him and, you know, raise my M16, scream at him and in, in, in Arabic. And he's like, everyone froze because one, they didn't realize I spoke Arabic. Two, they have a U.S. soldier in full battle rattle about to hose down this one unknown, you know, an unknown threat that I perceived. And he dropped his gun and, let, you know, proned him out the whole nine yards. But that's kind of like that sixth sense, as you described, like just something didn't sit right. And I just knew that that was a bad dude. Wow. Your BC must have uh, loved you that day. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, and just for some context, anybody who's ever worked day in and day out with an interpreter, and I, I, I had the fortunate pleasure uh, of doing it. And I say pleasure in retrospect because Bubba, as you like to be called, um, you know, he was a 23, 24 year old kid educated, you know, but just wanted to come and help out. And the money was great, right? The money was great for interpreters who wanted to come and help out the United States. Um, but in that same respect, again, I'm putting a whole lot of faith and trust in somebody. I don't know. I don't know their background. All I know is, is they were handed to me and vetted by vetted by that said that they're on the good side. Right. Um, and, and I can only imagine your battalion commander, you know, that's a, a really smart way to use you. Exactly the way. Just don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't let anybody know you speak a foreign language. Just listen. and Because, you know, it's, again, my interpreter, I never thought was against me. But there were so many people who were moles and everything else. And I, I could tell story after story, but I don't need to. But, you know, again, it, it's, we had plenty of indications of bad guys pretending to be good guys just to get yeah. information we started finding them out one by one and you always just had to wonder in the back of your mind i'm like is he could he be swayed could he be on the yeah. other side their way you know if if somehow they found out if the bad guys found out and then got somebody in his family now all of a sudden he's in a in a that position that yeah. so many um good people in iraq ended up being in who wanted to help americans right yeah, so, yeah. we're not gonna kill you we're gonna go kill your family if you don't do this for us kind of deal well that, that that's kind of what i what was found out kind of in my in my brigade you know the the brigade and, and the battalion 
where I was also loaned out to various units as as a uh, not just as interpreter, as an intel gatherer, also as a soldier. You know, here you have a U.S. soldier vetted from America, speaks fluent. Yeah. So every unit that that I ever worked with was like, again, they're extremely comfortable, obviously, because, yeah, I got a U.S. soldier that has a full battle rattle and can call in airstrikes if needed. You know, like, you know, I could I could take care of business if, if it really came down to it. And at the time, as young as I was, right, I was 22, 21, 22, when I actually went to war. And, and, you know, thinking about it years later, I'm like, holy crap, as a 21, 22 year old, you know, I had this massive responsibility that I, I didn't even think of it at the time, you know, because I was just going, you know, planning the ops with the, with the battalion commander, doing this, doing that talking to high level, you know, uh, Iraqis and, and high generals. And all. It, it didn't really occur to me that the effects-based operations that was going on in my AO was based on a lot of the intel I was gathering. And That's it didn't crazy. really dawn on me until, you know, until years later, you know. I mean, again, just unreal. And for other non-military folks listening and watching, you know, just the context of, your interpreters, yeah, they're given like a Kevlar and like a, a small little, you know, piece of body armor, but it's, it's, un- they look uncomfortable, right? So to have somebody at full battle rattle who can be able to, to do that, at least for the enemy, they're not expecting it. So, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, they know what the interpreters look like. They stick out like sore thumbs. Anyway, yep. back up. So you sign up in a post 9 11 world. Um, and how quickly do you get through basic AIT and, and then into Iraq? Like, how quick does this happen? About a year and a half by the time. So I, I enlisted, I went in 2002. Um, I did, what I ended up doing was a delayed entry program. That way I can finish my semester uh, in college and then head, you know, then I go to basic out at uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, a beautiful Fort Sill. <laughs> so uh, went out there. Yeah. yeah, right. So I did, so I did my uh, basic and AIT all together. Uh, so I did OSET. So uh, one station unit training, I think. It was, yeah, that's, so I did OSET at the time and uh, spent uh, three and a half months uh, at, at lovely Fort Sill. And then, um, and then came home and a year later we got mobbed for, uh, for Iraq. Okay. And so when you went to later, you, you were national guard the whole way, right? Yeah. 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 National guard. I went national guard. And then at the time, uh, when uh, obviously the wars were kicking off uh, in Massachusetts, uh, it seemed that almost every combat arms National Guard unit was being rotated every year. So you come back home a year, then you redeploy a year, come back home a year. Re- so that's kind of like that's the way the, 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 the I guess the uh, battle rhythm in, in Massachusetts was, was every other year uh, you're going. Yeah, the Guard units were, I mean, still to this day being pressed more than they ever have in the history. Yeah. So uh, and it's. Yeah. Different conversation, but it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, yeah, yeah. You either need to change the slogan uh, and and the campaign, the, the recruiting strategy of one weekend a month. Um, oh, that went out the window after September 11th. I, I I said that I'm like, hey, this is not one weekend a month. We were doing uh, weeks at a time. You know, not even one, one weekend week a month. month. My ass is what. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, again, different conversation. Either they need to change yeah. that whole idea of that's what you're pitching to people, um, yeah. or you you know you need to go back to leaving the guard alone um, and, yeah. and only use them when absolutely needed as a literal last line of defense, because that's yeah. exactly what they're intended to be. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, that we need to start rewriting some very old documents, but again, <laughs> okay. So when do you get to, when, you, when do you get notification from mobile? What are you told? Where are you going? What are you doing? 
So we, during uh, one of our extended, I'll call extended ATs uh, out of Fort Drum, uh, we were there for about a month. Uh, you're talking, this is uh, August of, uh, even before then, like July, we started, uh, July of 2004, we started hearing rumblings like, oh, hey, our number's up, we're going to deploy. Um, I was actually going to deploy, let me back up real quick, I was going to deploy uh, at the invasion. Uh, they were asking for guard members who wanted to go for the invasion of Iraq in 2003 when it kicked off. Um, and I was slotted to go, but uh, Murphy's Law, I end up tearing my ACL, MCL, and I couldn't go. <laughs> so, so I had to wait a whole year, basically, to rehab and all that stuff. And then, you know, July of 2004, we started hearing the rumblings and I literally get, we get the orders August of 2004 and we were at Fort Dix, uh, like September of 2004. How long was the train up? Uh, it was till December. Yeah. 90 days. It was, it was 90 days, not, not till December. And then we went over. So it was like, I always laugh. I tell people, I'm like, yeah, they, they, on paper, it's one year. But the reality is it's it's anywhere between 15 to 18 months. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, I was the one of the things I was most proud of both of my deployments. I got in and out of that mobile station in about 35 days. Yeah, I know that <laughs> there's no reason for us to just get us down range. The sooner we start yeah. this shit, the sooner it'll be over. Yeah, like, yeah stop exactly. I was like, we've already done this. Check the block. We've already done this. Check the block. You yeah, know? exactly. So yeah. I fought, I fought tooth and nail, um, you know, to, to not, cause I knew it could be a 90 day slog. Yeah. You know, if you didn't push the envelope, they would just, I'm like, yeah. no, 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 let's go. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, the sooner, again, the sooner we start this, the sooner we're getting the hell out of here. So exactly. So you, it, that's crazy because I, um, I got to Iraq in March, 2005, late March, early April, 2005. So when did you end up getting there? So ended up, so December, we fly to uh, Kuwait and then we stay an additional three weeks. Yeah. Additional three weeks in Kuwait, you know, just like this place on earth. Exactly. And I'm like, why are we still here? (laughs) You know, like we were all itching, obviously like, dude, get us across the border and let's go. You know, so, uh, so we ended up uh, finally, so January 2005 sort of officially like right after new year's we landed in uh, camp anaconda and, and oh by the way you know the, the other part of that whole thing is when just for people listening with the long you know pre-mob and then you get in kuwait all that adds up to for a guy like me as a commander is paperwork because dudes get in trouble <laughs> they're freaking poor. yeah that's yep <laughs> like bad things happen when you leave soldiers idle and don't give them annual crap to do so yep. the reason I was pushing so hard, it was <laughs> as much as it was about, let's start this so we can finish. It was like, yep. if we hang around here, something stupid's going to happen. Yeah, so, it's true. <laughs> shot, if that didn't happen to you guys, I'd be surprised. Well, the uh, NCOs were very, uh, were very hard on everybody. Us NCOs, we, we made sure people were in line and, and we kept them training and for good reason. So uh, where do you end up in Iraq? So we get to Camp Anaconda. Uh, yeah. We start there, and, and, and yeah, Balad, and uh, and you know, I'll never forget when we. Uh, you remember the combat drop when the C one thirty goes from like twenty thousand feet to land? Uh, I'll never forget that. Exactly, the corkscrew down. Corkscrew landing. And, yeah, where, yeah. Where you just turn green, you're like laying against the wall, and like just yep. I just want to throw up. Yeah. 
Was well, just... I, what's funny is, uh, funny, not funny. I was asleep during that flight and oh. no, no one woke me up to tell me that we were uh, landing. Yeah. So I thought we were crashing. And you see, <laughs> I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And, you know, so they're like, no, no, no. It's just because I understand. Up. Yeah, I, I only <laughs> laugh because I've been, I, you know, I understand what it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, so so as we're, you know, we finally land and, and half, the, half the unit is throw, throw up bags. They, they actually, they, you know, the flight crew was nice enough not to wake me up. Just left me a throw up bag on my lap. That was that was really nice there of them go. to not disturb me. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, so I, you know, half the guys were throwing up, and we get out, and uh, and you know, the first thing was, you know, we get in formation and uh, head towards the uh, big big tent, kind of like to start our mob. And I found it kind of funny because you take your cat card and you sign into war. And that's that's what I, that's what I call it. you. Just swipe and yeah, I'm your, checked in. <laughs> checked, in checked in the combat. We'll, we'll, we'll Twelve months. Exactly. Uh, and shall yeah. they say? Uh, yeah. yeah, and. and uh, I remember when we did the first, we got, we landed at night. I don't know if you guys did, but you yeah, we see, did at night. Yeah. It was at night. Rounds. You can see tracer rounds flying yeah, past. It, windows. That's uh, exactly what, it, again, I thought we were crash landing. I thought we got hit. Like I had no idea what was going on. So, so once I, again, once I realized guys are telling me, Oh, we're doing the combat drop. I'm like, you, you motherfucking, like you should have woke me up. You know, I had no idea, but, uh, but anyway, so yeah, we, we check in land and all that. And, uh, and we stayed on Anaconda again, Freaking hurry up and wait, right? We stay on Anaconda an additional week, you know, Mortar City, Mortar's hitting us all the, you know, every single day where I'm sure you guys were the same way. Eventually, you just don't care anymore. You just, if the mortars go over your head, you kind of wait, okay, okay, it's far enough, you know, not too, not too worried. You know, you kind of get desensitized to it, but the you, unit, know the, uh, you know the ones that land danger close. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and once you know the uh, I forget which unit uh, came and picked us up, but uh, picked us up. This would be my first outside the wire experience. You know, so I had no idea what to expect. You know, when when we went outside the wire. All right, so you guys convoy from Balad to wherever you're going. Yeah, so where we were um, was uh, north of the city of Kalis. Um, uh, probably by 15, 20 miles, we were on a remote fob, which was nice. Uh, so that way uh, we didn't have the issues of mortars, really. So it was, it was actually nice to be in, on a remote fob. Okay. Um, and and trying to think of uh, Collis from Balad, what are we talking about uh, time-wise? Um, about 45 minutes, if I remember correctly. Like just about an hour to – yeah, just just about. Okay. Um and the only once you once you get out of Balad, um, it's actually not that bad. Uh, no, so, no, it's not. You know, like the, the scenery around it and the area around it. So, uh, you know, while you're getting mortared on the inside, it's it's not that bad of a, a ride. But um, you guys were actually uh, near Bakuba too, right? Up, up in that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the area we were in. All right, just to, and again, I'm I'm trying to just orient it for the for the audience. You know, if uh baghdad is is uh let's just call it uh new york city yep. is like westchester county like it's not yeah. that far away uh yeah, yeah, yeah it's up that way so you know the difference probably from like sacramento to san francisco kind of deal anyway yeah yeah so when you get there what are you told what is your are you i mean do you have a specific area of operations you're working in like what what's so the- yeah so uh there was like three separate missions on this fob that each unit was assigned. 
And we were assigned, uh, my unit was assigned detainee ops, which we kind of like, oh, okay, here we go. So we went to do detainee ops and uh, that's what they ended up uh, doing. But I did, I obviously did not do that at all. Uh, once the battalion commander realized that he had an Arabic speaking soldier, which was about a week and a half later, uh, Arabic speaking soldier, he's like, yep, poop, plucked, you know, took me out and assigned me direct for, to the battalion commander. Did that bother you? No, I actually wanted to get out there, you know, oh, to do it. To actually, yeah, no, no, I actually, I was, I was itching to go outside the wire. Uh, it was, it was one of those things where I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I, I wanted that specific mission uh, to be out there with the soldiers. So this is, you know, late January, you get your feet on the ground. I mean, you know, the, the incident that we referred to earlier uh, for you doesn't happen until September. Yeah. So obviously, what's like the the steady state of operation? What's your operational tempo as you kick this thing off? I mean, the battalion so, obviously wants to be everywhere and do everything, right? I mean, yeah. That, our, our battalion commander was a very proactive one. Okay, he 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 wasn't. Uh, I, I know there were some battalion commanders that were sort of reactive. Uh, he wanted to be more proactive, and we ended up knocking. So IED strikes and ambushes skyrocketed downwards under his command as a result of the proactiveness, you know, the proactive approach he had towards our AO. And, you know, his biggest, his biggest uh, thing, I mean, I'll never forget some of his speeches. I mean, he, he was, uh, he was quite the guy that, you know, you want to run into battle with, you know, he, he was that type of commander. And uh, one of his thing, you know, I'll never forget one of his speeches, he would, he would, you know, to the battalion uh, during, you know, so every Friday night, there'd be a battalion that he called it fight night. It was a boxing ring we built. And it was actually pretty genius on his part that hey, if you have a beef with another soldier, take it out on the ring for, you know, and, and settle it there. So it was actually pretty, pretty decent idea on his part. But every night he would, every Friday night, if he's around, he'll do a speech. And one of his biggest things was he'd always say, you know, if you see something, you fucking kill it. You know, like he said, do not, do not hesitate. Do not let complacency set in, get it, get after it. And he always told, you know, the gunners, everybody like your posture should be aggressive. You should not be laid back. You should not be. So, so it was, we, we kind of put a very, very good stamp in our AO that we're the type of you, you know, we're the type of battalion you don't want to mess with. Okay. Um, how much, actual combat did you see leading up to september so i mean because in reality uh, the battalion commander is is like the last guy to the combat party so to speak you know unless on, on the off chance you get hit directly while you're going somewhere it's always other troops are in contact and you're playing yeah yeah so actual combat there's been times where again colonel being the battalion commander we've had to had to rein him in sometimes because he loves to go into the fight and uh, and there were times where he would be my number two going through a freaking door and I'd realize it's him. I'm like, uh, OK, <laughs> you know, um, so so actual combat. I mean, it was it was a small percentage because, in fact, it was a battalion commander, but it was enough to kind of keep us on our toes also right. at the same time, so, but, because so he, as you as yeah. you're going through this, like you were saying, hey, I'm itching to get outside the wire. I mean, and like a month or two into this, you realize, yeah, nothing happens around the B.C. Yeah. Like, are you yeah. pissed now at this point in time? You're like, what am I, this sucks, why am I here? Well, at, at first, not, well, at first, yes. But then when I realized, again, like years later, when I realized what I was actually doing, um, you know, I, 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 I kind of adopted a lot of UW type approaches 
um, a lot of intel, you know, especially when special forces came around, uh, the AO, and I'd work with them and do some stuff with them and other units, God knows who, but they'd come to me for intel and they like I had I had such the pulse of the entire AO that we worked. Um, I knew what villages were friendly, what villages weren't. Who were the, who were the high value targets? Who were getting ambushed? Where the ambushes were happening? Who was moving troops? You know, Al Qaeda troops around. So I, I knew, you know, just through talking, through, just through intel gathering, and and ever, again, like I said, did it ever like freak you out? Like. All of a sudden, you know, you're in this unconventional warfare mindset, like, you know, this UW unconventional warfare mindset where you're like, what am I even doing here? Like, this is not what I trained. This is not what I signed up. Like, I'm not that guy. Like, they, we have people who do this stuff and it's not me. Yeah, no, it, it, it was kind of funny because I tell people, you know, oh, yeah, I have you know, field artillery. But then when I describe my deployment, they're like, well, yeah, yeah it's not field artillery at all. I'm like, I know I, I got I'm trained in Fort Sill to do to not even do the job. Yeah, I mean, listen. Uh, again, it happens. It happens in the in the in the uh, in the special ops world. That's where my first deployment was, and, and I, I say it all the time. I I was asked to do a hundred things that I wasn't even remotely close to being trained to do. Period. Yeah, like, it wasn't me, but hey, you know, in the fight, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's going along, and, and you, you're starting to realize the depth and the scope of where we are holistically. And and I wonder. Let me go deep here on you for a minute. Yeah, yeah. You grew up in a country or you grew up in countries where civil war and war were a way of life. Like it was a way to get things done. The the, the physical extension of politics and diplomacy um, in those countries sometimes is only shown through violence. Yeah. Um, is there part of you that understanding the, the complex nature of where you are in Iraq and, and knowing all this information about where things are? Is there any part of you that in the back of your mind is like, this is hopeless? Or are you like, you know, hey, we might have a shot to actually win this thing? Like, wh- what are you thinking? Because I, I remember having those conversations with myself. Like, this is a waste of damn time. Even if I survive, this is a waste of damn time. So, so my, again, you know, really deep down, deep dive, right? Uh, I knew we were there. Wasn't going to change much, though, because you have again, me knowing the culture, thousands of years of <laughs> hate between each other. That ain't going that, away in months. That, exactly, that, you know, two, three hundred year old America is not going to fix. Mm-hmm. And I would talk to these, you know, village elders and, and, and the, the, the mayors and all that, and, and they're talking about stuff that happened hundreds of years ago yep. that they still have that anger towards the neighboring village or the neighboring sect. And, and, and it was never about, and that's the thing I'm sure you've seen, we've all seen the videos of, you know, commanders yelling at the IPs to be like, when are you going to fight for your country? You know, and, and which I used to fight, yell at them that way, except mine was in Arabic and a lot harsher. <laughs> and, and I used to say, I used to say, I'm like, you know, look at my squad. And I was like, you know, we're mixed. Like, you know, you have right. a guy from the Middle East, you got a guy from Africa, you got a, you know, a guy from Japan, you got this, you got that. I said, you go into my unit, you have every creed, color, religion in that unit fighting for the same thing, you know, whether it's fighting for each other, uh, you know, to, to, you know, finish the mission, all that. And, and that's what I used to say. I said, you need to take all your groups and fight for Iraq, not fight for 
this sect or that sect or this sect of the religion or that's it. And, but, but again, to them, they didn't understand that because they still lived in those medieval times. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And I can remember my, my interpreter, you know, saying to me behind it, you know, we'd be in meetings with literally the Iraqi army, like people in the Iraqi army and two officers would be fighting and he would be like, oh, he's a Sunni. That's why he's, he's yeah. you know, like he yeah. would lean over and tell me that, you know, and, and so they don't like each other because one's Sunni and one's Shia and you're sitting here going, really? Like, yeah. We're still, we're still doing this? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, actually, uh, I'll never forget a... Uh, interpreter that I actually uh, met and worked with uh, a number of times. He was a Syrian. And even though technically he was Iraqi, he refused to acknowledge he was Iraqi. He said, no, I'm a Syrian. I was like, I am not Iraqi. I hate Iraqis. I'm a Syrian. I, I used to tell him like, then what, really? I was like, that, that's just, you know, that, that mindset, like I, one, I understand that mindset too, but at the same time, we've, I'm, I'm the type like, well, let's, time to grow out of it you know and and like let's let's move forward but yeah, they don't know how to do that you know again i said repeatedly you're not going to change two thousand years of culture in uh in in 18 months or two years yeah. or five years or it's just not gonna it doesn't you know it doesn't no. work that way uh, yeah you know I, I, let's just put this in simple terms you know that that americans can understand let's see we got here in the mid 1600s it took us about 125 years to fight a war with mm. britain where we finally said, okay, we've had enough of this shit. Like, you know, so good. We're, we're, we're 20 years into this. So, you know, just about another century down, Iraq and be like, screw it. We're all together. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, nothing like, uh, you know, as you would understand, Arabs are very punctual on time. Inshallah. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah exactly. Exactly. I remember saying that to my guys. And no, no inshallah. Be there at 1500. I just told you. No, yeah, exactly. It's nothing to do with this. Get your ass in the meeting. <laughs> Yeah, so, so true. <laughs> yeah, uh, those are fun times. Um, yeah. All right, so you're you, you're going through the deployment. Um, is there any point prior to September where you experience something that kind of rattles you? Whether it's physically, like, oh my god, I feared for my life, or at least emotionally, you stumble upon something you didn't expect to see. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things, you know, during my deployment, you just see, um, you know, executed Iraqis you know, all over the streets, whether they were interpreters or specifically yeah. targeted, especially, uh, I'll never forget, we were we were on a mission. I, again, my baton commander, very, very aggressive, where he'll wake, you know, he'll wake up the entire PSD at 1A at, at 0100, you know, 0 dark 30, because we got intel that we need to go somewhere and he wants to go. I'm like, all right, let's go. And and because he wanted to be first on the ground. But, you know, we were, we were on our way back from Baghdad. We had a specific mission. I forget exactly what it is. And I'll never forget looking uh, outside my window, we see a, uh, an Iraqi who was executed and the IP checkpoint, not even 50 yards from him. Now, safe to assume that the IPs executed him for some reason and they left his body out for display, right? And all of us kind of collectively wanted to do something about it, right? Whether go to the IPs and see what that, or just freaking take care of business our way. And, um, I'll never forget. Commander goes, you know, battalion commander says, "Hey guys, stay on azimuth. We got we got somewhere we need to be. I know what you're thinking, but stay on azimuth." And and you know, for for people that don't know, you know, you, you know what stay on azimuth and and sure. military guys know stay on azimuth. Basically, you know, basically it's the, the compass that we use as azimuth. And when you when we say to yeah, stay on course, basically. And uh, and we drove by, and it, it you know there was certain little things here and there that 
you know, children suffering, you know, that that's always the worst. Um, you know, after a bombing, you know, you're, you're picking up, you know, kids that were hurt. Um, just those tiny things that just lead up to uh, big, you know, big situations where, you know, you're driving through Mosul and shots are being fired and you mo- you're trying to move through, right, and push through. And you just see the carnage, the after carnage of everything once, you know, so-called the dust settles. And uh, you see more civilians hurt because the uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, Al-Qaeda operatives would use them as human shields purposely, you know, where we, you know, we've seen it where you can't go into a mosque because, again, you know, uh, NATO rules and, and Geneva Convention. But they knew that and they would use that against us. So there, there's like just compound of things that you see that you're just like, God damn, you know, this, this is real. You know, this is real war. This is what real war looked like. And that's what I always tell people, like, it's not glorious. You know, there's no, you know, it's not a Hollywood. It's not this movie, you know, that, that goes, it's, it's real emotion, real anger, real, uh, you know, revenge type feelings that you'd feel, uh, especially what, you know, when it leads up to September, um, you know, at that time, we were really uh, getting to that point of aggression, right? It was like one thing after another, after another. And even as a, as a, even though we were the battalion commander's PSD, we also had the ability to go outside the wire ourselves without the BC, you know, at times where he was too busy doing battalion commander stuff. And we just kind of like, hey, you guys want to go out for a bit? Yeah, well, you know, let's go. We, you know, whether we get intel and we want to act on it or whatever, we were free to do that too. So, so it's just a lot of things that, that I got to see uh, on both sides that really kind of shook me over time. If you want to call it that. The, the, the depravity of, of war um, in the macro sense is, is un- incomprehensible to people who haven't been there. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you see, you know, mangled body parts and explosions and everything else and destruction and, you know, it, it those vivid, those vivid images stay with you for a really, really long time. There's, there's, there's no escaping that. Um, yep. You know, and it's, it's crazy because uh, I, I want to ask you this because it just sort of made me pivot. There are moments in war of such like levity and, and you know, peace. I, I mean, I can remember playing with Iraqi children, you yep. know, stumbling upon them and running up to the vehicle, giving them candy and everything else. You know, I remember going to visit an Iraqi school uh, yep. handing out school supplies um, you know, and every now and then you just bump into citizens and, and you have pleasant exchanges and everything else. And it seems so normal. Yeah. You know, but you're sitting for, for almost for a minute, you forget you're in full battle rattle and there's yeah. Kevlar and a rifle and there's grenades here and flashbangs and everything else. And you're, you're, there's a, there's a knife in your pocket and, you know, like, but in the same respect, you're just sitting there like you're two, two hard hat guys, you know, you know, having a sandwich at lunch while you're waiting to go back to work. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just this weird, weird dichotomy. Um, and and as, as much as there is the bad stuff, there is the good stuff. You encounter any of that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, like you said, under, under that UW sort of mindset I had, um, you know, I'd go to the villages and we'd sit down and have breakfast, like, you know, tea, eggs, you know, I take my Kevlar off and we're just, and we're not talking about anything other than just life philosophies, you know, not, not even really engaging in any, I wasn't even really 
intending on engaging on any sort of intel type gathering uh, that came after, which I'm sure you've experienced this where, you know, in these village meetings or whatever, you could spend an hour or so just shooting the shit before you actually get into business because one, they want to get to know you and your philosophies before they even give you any sort of information. So for me, it was like a twofer bit where they really wanted to know why I'm doing what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. Especially being a guy from the Middle East and, and living, you know, born overseas and at home. They really wanted to dive into the curiosity of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And like you said, though, I forget that I'm wearing full IBA. You know, I got the grenades, the, the full battle, you know, the, the eight magazines across my chest. <laughs> you know, I got my rifle. I got all this gear you know, that, that I'm, you know, rucking around in. And though those moments, you feel like you can just chill a little bit, you know, not, not be that hyper village vigilance that you always were because you're actually having a decent conversation with another human being, you know, you where, where the two sides, you're not worried about, is he bad? Is he good? Is there's he a depravity, but there's a humanity yeah. to it, you yeah, know, and, exactly. And two, sometimes it's a very thin line between the two of them. Yes. You know, um, yeah. And and it almost makes you emotionally uh, it, it, on one hand, it's almost like bad because you don't want to get emotionally involved in combat. It's never yeah. Yeah. unless it's about the dudes you're with and, and the, the, the folks, the males and the, and the females that you're with. Um, you don't want to get emotionally attached to anything because yeah. that's a that's a it's a difficult place to be because as your botanical commander said, you know, that, that hesitation sometimes could be the difference between life and death for you or somebody else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's a bad way to get into it. So um, you have this full on combat experience. Had you guys lost any people within the battalion yet that you were aware of? Uh, so prior to, September, it, uh, prior to September, no, we haven't. We, we had lost people in the brigade. Um, we lost uh, soldiers that, uh, you know, I remember this big transportation unit coming through. I think they were part of the 82nd. Um, they got hit bad, complex ambush, multi- daisy chain IEDs with, you know, with a firefight. And we went up to back them up and we called in Kiowas, uh, which, which I love. That's a whole different conversation with, with those guys. But, you know, we call those guys in, we do what we got to do. And, and again, once the dust settles, it's that aftermath, that realization, you know, where it's like, holy shit, you know, like, especially seeing the daisy chain IED where all these trucks got mangled, you know, and, and, you know, getting now, we had to be the ones to kind of snap them out of that zone where you, you know how it is. You get, you get, you get this, you know, you get some soldiers that freeze, you know, it happens, right. That's just natural human response, depending on who, what, how your mindset is and who you are, you know, you, you get the soldiers that are just delirious walking around after the dust settles. And I remember me as a, you know, as an NCO, I, I grabbed one of the Kevlar, uh, the um, IBAs for one of the privates and literally slammed him up against the um, uh, you know, piece of armor. And I said, hey, stay the fuck here. You know, like, stay here. And, and I was trying to get him to snap out of whatever he was in to get him back into that, okay, we got work to do. You know, and, and you know, once we load up, I mean, it was a huge convoy, big transportation convoy. And we had to turn them all around and take them back to our FOB to get them refit, resupplied, food, whatever they needed to uh, get back on mission for them. Um, just, I'll ne- and, and the one thing I'll, uh, I'll never forget is being out front in front of that convoy walking and telling all the Iraqis to move, you know how it is. You got to right, move, move, move. Cause you got it. I got, I had about a, I believe 50 to 75 truck convoy 
uh, it was it was a large, large convoy of transportation. And not once did I think that, well, I had it in my head. Um, these could be bad guys, you know, in these trucks, there might be a V bid hidden in here somewhere like, you know, it was it was just bad, but it was just me and, and, a, and a major. And I was talking, you know, doing my thing in Arabic, move, move. And, and you know, later on, I'm like, wow, I, I was out in the middle of the road. I, I was a prime target, man, you know. Uh, but at the time, again, uh, I was at once, you know, did you ever think of that stuff? You know, did you fear that stuff? Did you do this? I said, well, if I was in fear of everything, I wouldn't leave the fob. You know, if I had to think of, if I had to think of it that way. Well, again, you know, sometimes there's a, there's a, we say this all the training kicks in, right? Like, you know, yeah. That. Uh, yeah. And, and the idea of, okay, we have a mission, dude, we got to move these people out of the way because we got to keep going forward. Your own personal safety and basic things of, of, you know, Hey, don't stand out in the middle of an area by yourself. <laughs> um, sort of goes out the window onto the guise of, Hey, we're just, I'm, I'm getting this done so we can get moving. Yeah. Um, sometimes the worst action is inaction, right? Um, even yeah. though you're safe and protected, you know, you might staying in the vehicle. It sometimes is the worst option for everybody involved uh, than necessarily getting out there and making things happen because sometimes the enemy is unaware of what is going on around them as, as you are, and you could take yeah. advantage of it if you move and move quickly. Yeah. Uh, so, nonetheless, um, so relatively, you've been unscathed. Everything has sort of been on the periphery, but then we get to September twentieth, two thousand five. Uh, yeah. Just a normal day when you wake up. I mean, it, does it seem like a routine set of marching orders you're getting? Pretty much, you know, we uh, get together with the other with the other um, squad. Mm-hmm. Um, if you so, just for context, the other squad. Actually, let me uh, bring this up real quick. Uh, we just found out that one of the guys of the squad uh, recently got a distinguished service co- uh, cross. Uh, these th- this squad was was le- you know legitimate. Um, they 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 had they had quite the time uh, in Iraq. Um, they're uh, Sergeant uh, Leigh Hester, uh, the only female uh, to get a silver star oh, wow. uh, since World War II. She was in that squad, and uh, they were the 617 uh, MP company. Star- Staff Sergeant uh, Timothy Nine uh, received the Distinguished Service Cross. It was actually March 20, 2005, where they were escorting a supply uh, convoy and got heavily attacked. And, you know, the- they took care of business, and she... She like, yeah, she, she did a lot. He did a lot. And uh, I'm actually proud, you know, they got, you know, she got the silver star and he got the uh, distinguished service cross. So, so that's the caliber of guys that were in that flood that were, we were, you know, marching with that day. And so at the time they were assigned as QRF for the base. Right. So we wanted to go with them. We, we had sort of a marching orders where we were going to do kind of a, a, a split, split the squad up. Uh, there, you know, her squad, uh, Sergeant Hester's squad would go uh, one direction and we'd go another direction and sort of meet back in the middle after we do what we do, um, whether it's talking to villagers or doing our patrols, stuff like that. So last, uh, so we mount up, you know, get ready to go. Everyone locks and loads. We're ready. We're good to go. And we start heading out. For some reason, last minute, over the singars. You hear, hey, uh, actually, you know what? We'll go right. You guys go left. All right, whatever. We got Roger that. You know, we'll, we changed the uh, course. And not even a few minutes later, uh, that's when you hear the nine, uh, nine line medevac. And you hear the chaos in the background of the Singars. And, and we realized they were hit. 
and uh, we get there. And I remember we just raced as fast as we can there. Um, at the time, uh, you know, Sergeant Hester was calling in the, 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 the medevac. And uh, we had uh, Apaches and Kiowas uh, in the area en route. So for me, as I was in the battalion commander's gun truck, um, we pull up. And we see Sergeant Allers, uh, who was KIA, Sergeant Allers' truck, completely blown to bits, mangled. Um, and the reason why, it was three 155 artillery shells. That was the IED. And uh, and you know how powerful those are. And imagine three of them wrapped in, yeah. a, in an IED. So we pull up, and I'll never forget seeing one of the soldiers open the rear door and stumble out. He was black, you know, from the smoke, just completely black. From that same vehicle. Yes. And that, from that same vehicle, completely covered in black. And I remember the Colonel uh, looks at me and says, Hey, Sarge, I need to be able to talk to air, to the uh, air assets. And I need to talk to the battalion talk, set up the radio. And that's that moment one of the many moments where my training kicked in out of nowhere. And, you know, you feel that out of body experience where you're pushing the buttons, turning the knobs, but you're not really like, I'm not physically, you know, like all of a sudden my mind just went, did you, you know, doing my thing. And, and that's one thing the Colonel, like during the AR debrief, he said, you know, Sarge, that was awesome. How quickly you were able to get my radio situated. And in my head, I'm like, dude, I didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, like I'm just, I, okay, if that's what I did, but I don't even remember setting up the frequency hops, the frequency specific frequency, like it was all in my head because again, like, like training, we ingrained that stuff in the back of our head. That way in moments of crisis, that training that sits in our, you know, cerebellum, our amygdala, all that, all that brain, primal brain function come to the forefront because you're doing reps after reps after reps. And I just did that. And then once he got situated, I, I, uh, I get out and start helping with, uh, with casualties and uh, perimeter. So the Blackhawk lands, the Medivac Blackhawk lands, um, we, we end up setting up the landing zone for it to, to get a good spot for it to land. It landed. And uh, with, I was working with the crew chief to get the litters out and, uh, you know, got a bunch of litters, a couple litters out. And I run over to the gun truck with one of the crew chiefs. I remember Sergeant Hester she was furious that her litter wasn't opening. I'll never forget. She threw it literally across like the way, you know, and uh, grabbed what we had and rushed it over to where Allers was. And his body was mangled. Like just, you know, we knew he was KIA. You know, no, no one, no one would survive that, you know? And, um, and he was the driver. And, then? No, he was actually the uh, truck commander. The, 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 uh, yeah. 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 Yep, passenger seat. Yep, yep. And that's where it hit directly on the passenger, right under him, where it hit. Yeah. Um, you know, extensive wounds with the goner. Um, the driver, he was physically okay. But, you know, again, he was one of those. I, I don't know how. <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't know how either because we had to physically restrain him. Like the uh, first be- half of the vehicle is essentially missing. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know. Again, I don't know how. Uh, I remember he... Again, we had to physically restrain him or, or the, the, you know, the squad had to physically restrain him because he was in a dangerous spot where he was exposed. And, you know, we didn't know what other enemies were out there if they were. 
so we had to literally physically strain him and, and put him down near one of our gun trucks to keep him safe. And, you know, you can hear the screams and the screaming, his screaming, you know, um, and, uh, after we load up Sergeant Allers and the gunner who was also wounded, uh, medevac took off and, um, you know, uh, the, the rest of the, uh, MPs, uh, the 617th, um, I don't remember exactly where, I think they just went back to the fob. Um, but we stayed, uh, at the time because CID was coming out because there was a, because of, there was a very specific bomber that got trained by Chesnian that had a signature on every IED he made. And that was one of the IEDs. So they wanted to come out to collect that evidence. And uh, we ended up just staying there, you know, with the perimeter. And during that time, we started seeing body parts from Sergeant Allers. And uh, then, you know, myself and a couple other NCOs, we just walked around and uh, collected body parts, uh, put them in a cooler uh, right next to me. What made you do that? Everyone comes home, you know, even even the pieces, you know, I want we wanted to make sure every part of them came back home because that's that's something that we do, you know, leave no man behind, whether it's a body part or or whatever. Um you know, so so we walked around, and, and and one thing I'll never forget is picking up his a large chunk of him. I mean, you're talking like probably this bit, you know, uh, big chunk, maybe his thigh. I, I don't know what it was that I picked up, but it was pretty big. And and I ended up grabbing some. Uh, we had like you know random shit in the trunk of the uh, gun truck, so I found like magazine and used the magazine to kind of cover it up. That way, I can pick it up and bring it over to the cooler. And, uh, you know, one of the sergeants started dry heaving because the smell, you know, that, that burning flesh, um, you know, I, I told him, Hey, just take a walk. I'll, I'll, I'll take it and, uh, placed it right in that cooler. And, uh, it was very surreal that day, just, you know, experiencing all that, you know, there was so many emotions going on in us. Um, and ultimately in the end, it was that one of revenge, you know, like you just really killed one of ours. And now we want to get you. Um, you mentioned the screaming from um, the driver who was yeah. put down. Uh, yeah. Is that a noise that you were able to block out? Or is it like one of those things where uh, you, you kind of that, that stays with you or it, it kind of bothered you that you heard him screaming, like to know that somebody was in that kind of pain? I, I ended up blocking it out. I heard it. And then just kind of, okay, you know, my, my guys are taking care of them because they're, they're holding them down. But, but the echo of the screaming, I guess, is something I'll never forget. You know, just that, that screaming. Um, what, uh, is there part of it that you, you look at that? Cause I look at that vehicle and I don't, I'm shocked that anybody survived, uh, yeah. given what was there. Um, did you think that, you know, they had actually in, in some size, way, shape or form had gotten like lucky that it was only one of them? Because I, 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 I'm i still in awe of the condition of that vehicle and how anybody walked away from that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those. I, I have no idea. One in a million type type situations where it was only just the, the TC that got you know killed and the rest wounded. And even the like you said, the driver, I don't know how he, he got out unscathed. By the time you are. are Exfilling off the scene there, 
Um, your battalion commander saying anything? I mean, other he's seen you've presented this issue like he's very matter of fact and he's going to follow the letter of the law of what needs to be done from a military standpoint because there's a manual somewhere that says do this, do this, do this, <laughs> uh, and doesn't show much emotion. Did he show any emotion at all? No, he was very business also, uh, made sure the, the medevac, he wanted, again, you know, like any, any real good commander, he was, he made sure we were all on, on point still, you know, set up the perimeter, do this, do that, get this done, get that done, you know, as, as we were there. But once it's settled, I remember seeing him in the distance, he was sitting on a mound, just quiet, kind of looking into the distance. And, you know, we, we kind of just gave him his space. Uh, you know, cause we knew he was at that point, the emotions were setting in, you know, because we block them out as we're doing the job. But then afterwards, you, you know, you and I both know they just come flooding back and, or they flood, you know, because of what you suppressed during that time. Did you ever get a chance to talk to him about the incident? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we still talk about it to this day. Uh, so you still have like, a relationship with him? Oh my, yeah. We're like close, close bonded best friends okay good I have, yeah. a, I have a lot of questions um yeah yeah we'll get to them later um yeah. but i mean while you were there on deployment did you ever say anything to him like hey sir you know you okay yeah i mean w- you know what's interesting with him was when he was with us he was just another one of the guys uh it was it was very interesting the way he was around us we knew he was the battalion commander but he also let the ncos run it Right. You know, we, we ran, it was our squad. We ran it and he was just the passenger, you know, get me from point A to point B and the, but the NCOs ran it. And the only time he would step in is if it needs to be like at that, his level command decision. Uh, but nine times out of 10, we were running the show and, and that's just the way he was, you know, he, 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 he came from an NCO background before he became an officer. So he has a deep appreciation and love for the NCO Corps. When does the weight of all this hit you? I mean, is it later that night? Is it the next day? Like when actually you- uh, during, during the memorial, I'd say, uh, you know, we, we did a, the quick memorial. Uh, I kind of set in then. Um, but at the same time, I didn't really allow it to set in really because I still had a job to do. I still had missions. You know, it's one of those things where, you, you know, you know, you got a KIA you do the memorial. Now you're on to the next mission. You know, you're on to the next, next task, especially at war. So I, I never really got a chance to process it till I got home. Uh, quick morbid question. Um, the body parts you collected, I assume they ended up making it back where they needed to go. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we, we made sure that happened. Uh, yeah. Went back with him, you know? Okay. Um, so when does that deployment finish? You got there in January, so you had to be about by the end of the year. I mean, like, well, yeah. let me rephrase. After September, <laughs> did anything else go completely haywire? <laughs> no, no. So we got back home uh, after the new year, so uh, January of 2006. Okay. Um, and even actually before then, uh, before I, I forget, we had another KIA, uh, Sergeant Worley. Uh, it was during a combat operation uh, where they hit an IED, and uh, we rushed down to him and uh, – he took shrapnel straight up underneath his, uh, his, uh, chin and he was still alive while the medics were working on him and he was gasping for air. He couldn't breathe and they were trying to do everything he can. From my understanding, you know, he made, he was alive all the way to the hospital table where he ended up, you know, finally dying because of shrapnel scrambling his, in his head and all that. 
So, so we had two KIAs just towards the end of deployment, which is leads to the whole, you know, the curse, the, the, the last two, three weeks of deployment is always the worst because that's when, you know, got for some reason, it's just this curse, you know, that just happens uh, during the last month of your deployment where people, more soldiers are starting to get killed. And you're like, what, what is going on? You know, and, 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 you know, there's so many theories, complacency, can't wait to get home, you know, all that stuff that, that happens. But, but that was, again, like I was still mission oriented, you know, and, and it wasn't until I got home in January, 2006, that everything really came flooding back. Yeah. Uh, it, it is scary. Coincidentally enough. I mean, I, the worst IED explosion I was in was eight days before I left. So uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. times just, just trying to get the hell out of here. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you get back home. Um, now, now as a guard member, you have this 90 day window where they leave you the hell alone. Right. Um, you're, you're essentially left to your own devices. Am I, am I accurate in assuming that or no? At least that's the way it was for me. So, so we get home and um, we have a two-week reintegration to society. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which wasn't that at all. <laughs> it was sitting with the VA. It was uh, going through bullshit PowerPoints and never really assessing how the soldiers are. You know, uh, especially the ones that were outside the wire or even the ones doing detainee ops of what they experienced, what happened. You know, there was nothing like that, except we were told that if anyone has any issues, please tell us. You know, we really want to help you, you know, get back situated. But you got to stay on base uh, during your treatment. Now, what are you meaning? Can't go home. On base at, in in your Massachusetts it, Guard unit? No, 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 no. Uh, at Fort Dix. Okay, at Fort, okay. So you're still yeah. talking about at Fort yeah, Dix? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fort Dix. So okay. yeah, I was I was moving forward to when you actually got back to the state of Massachusetts. But yes. Oh no, no, back, yeah. So you get back to your DMOB site. I, I had the yeah. same thing at Fort Lewis the first time, uh, Fort Dix the second time. Yeah, you're yep. you're, you're there. Uh, yep. A lot of yes, PowerPoints, a lot of doctor's appointments. You know, yep. a lot of medical stuff to go through. This can you still hear? Can you still see? Can you still go to the yeah. bathroom? All these other things. And at, yeah. at, at that point in time, for those who don't know who are civilians, they give you an option to get treated there for it and stay there even longer. Yep. Or you can make the mistake that we all make and just sign the paperwork and say, I'll go get treated at the VA. That's exactly what we all did. <laughs> because all you want to do is go the home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all you want to do is just go home. And yep. it, it is a um, it's a bad, bad system. Um, it, it is it is and and in just, retrospect it's just like it it, it was bad <laughs> and i and i don't think the uh va and all the military was prepared with that influx of soldiers coming home uh who actually had issues you no, know no yeah. not that at all uh yeah. no you know now towards you know deployments are, are treated a little bit differently but yeah, I, mean, I remember how many things I signed away after my first appointment. Nope, I'll go to the VA. Nope, I'll go to the VA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, 15, 20 years later, it's like I'm still dealing with these issues that I should have had checked out back then. And, and it's a yeah. much more arduous process going through the VA. So, yeah, yeah, there's that. Um, I'm talking about. All right. So after you get done at Fort Dick, like, yeah, yeah, so it can happen that I'm missing out here. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll, I'll be good. So when you why, and why I said that? So when you get back to your guard unit, they they leave you alone for ninety days. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, they, you got ninety day basically of not having to deal with the guard. 
Right. But, you know, welcome home. We'll leave you the hell alone. Um, yeah. Is that when this all starts to hit you? Oh, yeah. Um, I what, don't know where it was. Uh, extreme anger. Um, uh, you know, just not being able to switch it off. And and it, I mean, that combat mind, you know, that, that, that hypervigilance, very aggressive towards any situation where, you know, we're taught in the military that, you know, speed, surprise, violence of action, right? And it's like it comes home with you, right? Without you really realizing it, where you go zero to violent in like that, you know, snap of a finger. And it, it, it like after a while, I started to realize that this can't be normal. I mean, I was punching holes in walls. I was, I was really angry, <laughs> you know, and, and wasn't able, wasn't processing why I was so angry. Uh, my little sister would come downstairs to check on me. She, you know, you know and I don't even remember this, but she told me uh, she came down. Uh, so I was living at home. So she came uh, down to our, our basement at the time. It was a fully furnished basement. It was like my own apartment type thing. Uh, she came downstairs and uh, to check on me because for some reason it was in the middle of the night. She came downstairs to check on me. And she said, I was sitting up on my bed, just staring at the wall. And I don't even remember that. And she actually had to snap me out of it, took me to the living room and we just watched TV. I, I don't even remember any of that. Uh, but that's her memory of me coming home was that eerie, you know, look on my face in the middle of the night, just staring at a blank wall. Thousand yard stare. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, is there anything about, you know, the, the QRF incident with Mallard that, you know, that starts to overcome. I mean, it's as simple as, Hey, we'll go left. You go right. And you have a completely different set of results. Yeah. And that's where that survival skill. Right. And, and that question, even to this day, uh, even with some of the other soldiers I've seen get killed, but, but this specific one was, you know, home, you know, our battalion. Um, it was always like, because he had a family at the time I was single, not married, no kids, nothing like that. I was a, a young E5 sergeant, just whatever. Um, he had a family, kids, you know, all that. And, and it was, you know, I, I remember I used to volunteer for really dangerous things because of that reason. So that way guys with families don't have to do it, you know, where, uh, you know, one of them was, uh, we did, uh, this convoy security with the detainees. They, they were riding in regular buses. Uh, so soldiers had to be assigned to the buses. It was not even up armored, nothing. It was just the Iraqi buses. And, uh, you know, I raised my hand and say, hey, I'll, I'll take one of the buses. And they wouldn't let me because, again, my, my mission was different. I had to be upfront with the recon team, uh, you know, uh, making sure the, the route's cleared. But but that was sort of my mindset where I'm like, God, damn, you know, this guy with, with a family and kids died and I'm still here. You know, why is that? Why, why did that happen? And and most people would say, well, that's your guardian angel or you have another purpose or, or whatever. And And no matter what it still leads me to that same question to this day is why, why couldn't have been me, you know? And, and I, and I'm sure soldier, I know a lot of other soldiers and Marines that I've spoken to over the years who had similar occurrences that also question why it wasn't them, you know, and, and that's that real survivor's guilt and that drive that drove me to become you know, go in the honor guard, honor soldiers that died overseas, because I felt it incumbent on me to honor them in that way. And that's also the drive that pushes me today, uh, no matter what, 
is because I'm doing the things that they can't do, you know, or they, they couldn't do, or they would want me to do kind of like in their honor. You know, the, the only, um, the only thing I can come up with uh, in reference to the question of why is I, I, and, and, you know, I lived through this myself, but you, you certainly understand the randomness of combat is impossible to figure out. I, I've said yeah. it before. You could do everything right and still have a bad result and you could do a thousand things wrong and still end up walking away without a scratch. I I, I don't, don't have an answer for you. Um, There is no preset determined outcomes in combat, mostly because one shit never goes the way you plan. And two, Mm -hmm. the enemy has a say, I mean, that's just, that's just what it boils down to. Uh, You hope that your plan is good. You hope that your plan is flexible. You hope that your training is good and you react the right way and you do what you're, all those things that what you hope for. In fact, I prayed for him every time. Just let me do what I was trained. You know, yeah. let yeah. me not, uh, uh, have that moment of, of self-doubt or, or, you know, insecurity or whatever that would cause me to pause in a moment when I was supposed to react. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, the amount of control you have in combat is next to zero other than when you pull the trigger and who, who you aim <laughs> the gun at. Um, yeah. Beyond that. Yeah a whole lot of different factors that's the only thing i can come up with i mean I, you know it's 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 trite but it's just a matter of the fact um yeah and, and you know uh for all of us who did survive uh and come out unscathed uh compared to those who didn't and aren't um you know there's there's not an easy answer as to why but there is a a you know uh i i guess a it wasn't meant for me kind of just, you know, it's as simple as that. Like it wasn't meant for me, you know, and in certain cases, look, there are certain days you sit there and think that I would trade a physical wound for all the mental wounds. Yeah. Cause I can adjust, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. hundred percent. I can, we've seen the amount of, of soldiers who have come back and, and overcome prosthetics and missing limbs and fingers and eyes and sight and ears, whatever it may be, you know, and yes, there's a million mental things that go along with that, but it's one of those things where it's like, if you're not injured, you, you, your, your sort of rationalization is, well, I can adjust much better than what I can't turn my brain off. Yeah. 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 That's a hundred percent accurate. That, that's the thing that, that again, like, like you said, I would trade a freaking give me a prosthetic type of thing versus what goes on in my head all the, you know, every single day, all the time, things that I think about things that, that I saw or, or did. And it's like, I'd rather have that physical wound. Is there, is there a mental picture that stays with you the most from that day in September? Just his body, his body and, and that big body part that, that I grabbed, you know, that, that, those are the only two things that really stick with me. Um, flashback still oh yeah yeah um i mean i and it's that's the thing where you know drinking never helps you know it it's uh you know i've had to overcome that too um you know especially uh realizing and going through therapy and doing the stuff i'm i should be doing i should have been doing way back when doing it now um it, it 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 they become a lot less frequent or a lot more frequent, a lot less, yeah, a lot less frequent, uh, because I'm able to recognize when they're about to happen or how I'm feeling or why I'm feeling it, you know, this way, that way the flashback isn't as extreme as it used to be. 
Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a moment ago that you decided that your path in the guard was going to now move to the honor guard. Uh, yes. Take through that decision, you know, and, and I know you mentioned, obviously it was in reference to what had happened, but you know, let's, let's talk this out emotionally. What, yeah. what are you hoping to achieve by being part of the crew that honors the fallen? To be, to be that, uh, also to be that uh, support for the family who lost that soldier, um, to cater to whatever needs they had, uh, especially during the funeral and during the uh, wake and all that stuff. And, you know, the, one of the biggest things that stood out for me from the honor guard is none of us wore our name tags, our name tapes, you know, on our, on our dress blues. And I asked the master sergeant why I said, what, why don't, because at the time I didn't understand. I said, why don't we wear that? And he said, it's not about me or you, it's about the fallen and the family. And I, you know, I took that to heart. I'm like, that's hundred percent accurate. I was like, it's not Same. about the honor guard, you know, it, it, it's about honoring them. The person you're giving the flag to doesn't care what your name is. Cause they're not. Yeah. Thinking exactly and even 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 sort of distract them sort of you know takes away from the reason why you're there um yeah now again i'll play devil's advocate here you know i I, i've been through several of those memorials downrange uh and that was enough for me to know i don't i don't i don't i don't need to be doing this back home like i I, this was enough It, it was enough to rip your guts out once yeah yeah in. Um, and I would hope that I never, you know, and I prayed that I would never have to go to any more of these things, you know, watching guys in uniform, just lose it and break down and cry that you'd never thought would do that. Um, is something that sort of stay, stayed with me at least. Yeah. Look over and you're like, that's that infantry ranger guy over there who is, you know, looks like he eats nails for breakfast. Uh, and now he's a puddle of mud. He's a puddle of mush. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, and this is just Mark, you know, I couldn't handle that on a day in day out basis. And I've had people on this show who, who have done that. Um, they, they've been part of those, those details that, that have done it for the same reasons you did. And I, I you're cut from a different cloth than me uh, <laughs> credit for it, but it's just, you know, there's only so much sadness I could take before it, it starts to make me sad, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, for me, uh, the toughest, details always when you're there folding the flag that that was was always the toughest because being part of the 21 gun salute you're off in the distance you're not hearing the cries or seeing the emotion you're just you know you're in the distance doing that but when i got assigned to be uh one of the flag folders um i didn't realize how tough it was going to be until i did my first one and it was a young soldier um out of uh, in Massachusetts, uh, Belchertown, Massachusetts, who died. He was 19 years old when he was killed in Iraq, and um, and I I was assigned to be you know the the guy on the uh, looking at the uh, casket. I was on the left, uh, front left. So you know I was one of the guys doing each fold, each crease, making sure that it's nice and and taut. And um, and that day it was downpouring rain, right? And and you know, as well as I do actually folding the flag in the rain, it's even harder because of the material and all that. So it took us a little longer than it should have because of the rain, but at the, you know, but you know, as I'm folding, you're hearing mom, brother, dad, bawling their eyes out. I mean, it was, it was tough, you know, but I kept saying in the back of my head, you know, doing it for him, doing it for them. Like, let me do it right. 
you know, and, and kind of keep my emotions in check. And after, you know, obviously with the rest of the honor guard, we, we kind of, you know, on the ride home, that's when we kind of like, you know, let that exhale out and be like, man, that was tough, you know, to, to do that. Because, you know, after the 21 gun salute, after the, uh, the trumpet, the flag folding is the quietest moment of the entire thing. And it, it was the toughest, you know, every time I assigned, got assigned that detail, it was, it was tough every time. Did you ever have to present a flag? No, no, that was the, uh, so, so, you know, the, the master sergeant was the one, you know, at the front of the casket, uh, you know, I, I just handed off to him and uh, typically we'd have a general there or, or a full bird uh, who presents the flag to the family. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want that job either for the record. No. Yeah. Do you, did you ever become desensitized to any of it? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just like, you know, we were talking, we were laughing earlier about Anaconda and the mortars and everything. You just all of a sudden were like, all right, cool. You know, let's, let's do this again. Does that make it lose its value if you're desensitized to it? So it's funny you said it, that's when I left the honor guard is when it got, when I felt that, all right, now I'm just going through the motions. Especially if, yeah, especially if there's no real, you know, and and at the time we weren't getting, uh, which is a good thing, <laughs> not getting a lot of uh, young vets. A lot of those details. <laughs> exactly. And it was more like older veterans or, you know, right. uh, natural is, cause. Really yeah, different. which is, yeah, natural cause deaths and they wanted military honors and that was fine. And so to me, I was like, yeah, we're doing a lot more of these older, like it, it to me, it, it, yeah, you still value honor the, the veterans before us, you know, no matter what. But to me, it was more like, yeah, I was there for that 19 year old though. I was there for that 20 year old young kid, you know, who was, who was killed overseas. And that's what I wanted to dedicate the time to. So as the, you know, as the months and years go by, we started doing more of the older uh, generation. And I was like, yeah, now it's starting to lose its, it's why for me. Um, this is ultimately the end of your military career. Uh, yeah. How do you come to that conclusion? Well, so we were getting ready to mobile again to back to Iraq. Uh, we got our second set of orders that we were going back. So going through the motions of, uh, you know, pre-mobe, um, going to the medics, this, that, the other. And one of the medics, uh, so I was doing like t- uh, Tylenol with codeine because of my back. Uh, I ended up hurting it overseas and uh, which surprise, surprise, you know, if you've been to combat, you're going to have some sort of physical injury too. You know, um, the medic felt that um, I'm no longer good enough and sent me to, uh, to uh, the med board and the med board decided to just medically discharge. Did and you I, want I to go back. Were you like, Oh yeah. About it? Okay. Yeah, I wanted to go back because it, it's kind of weird. It's not like, you know, uh, what was that in like Black Hawk Down? You know, I'm not a war junkie. You know, it's, it's not it's not about that. It was what I saw. So so what happened was the 102nd Field Artillery National Guard unit uh, was uh, disbanded and put into history because it's a lot. It's, it, it was uh, the oldest uh, field artillery regiment in the country uh, dating back all the way to the Revolutionary War. So they disbanded it and kind of put it in the history book. So the whole unit kind of got separated to different, to all the different other units, you know, wherever you want to go, you get reclassed, all that good stuff, whatever. Uh, so 
I didn't really know where to go. I wanted to find a unit that was going to mope, you know, all right, what unit is going overseas next? Um, and I found out there was this uh, MP unit, uh, 972 MP. They were getting ready to go to Iraq. I'm like, you know what? I've Whatever. done the MP thing before. Yeah, I've done, yeah, I've done the MP thing. So, okay, let's, let's do that. So went to that unit, uh, the, introduced the commander. Commander, again, knew, uh, realized I spoke Arabic. And he's like, I got a lot of work for you. So good to go. And as I was with that unit, I realized there were so many privates that are at a basic that have no freaking idea what combat is. Yeah. Right. And, and I felt as an NCO, it's kind of my duty to get these guys ready for what they're about to experience and see and do and potentially have to fire their weapon. And I felt that as one of the more veteran combat vets in that unit, I needed to be there for them. And I trained my squad hard, you know, and, and every time we trained, I would like, I'd randomly ask them nine line medevac go. And if they didn't get it, guess what they're doing? They're pushing or I'm having the whole, having them do some other uh, detail uh, to get them in that mindset. Because I think the one thing with the guard is, you know, as well, like, you know, once your weekend is done, kind of goes out the window and you're back at your regular job or whatever. To me, it changed, right? After experience, what I experienced at war, like, no, the guard, we're deploying every other year. You need to still keep that combat readiness up, you know? And, and I felt that, that it was very important for me to be there for these young soldiers that had no clue what they were going through. And I'll never forget one young private not knowing any better. Um, you know, we were just kind of shooting the shit and, and, he goes and he says, Oh, why, you know, why didn't, you know, one of the guys, Oh, why did you join? You know, well, what made you join? Oh, I just want to go kill Hajis. And man, the look that I gave him and some of the other veteran combat vets gave him must've, must've kind of ignited a couple of the specialists to take him aside and correct his action and correct his words. Yeah. And, uh, it, 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 that's when I think that could even realize like, oh shit, like, yeah, these guys are no, like, there's no joke, you know, and these combat vets have a certain level of experience that we don't have. Yeah. Well, and, and after you go through combat, once you realize it's not, I want to kill Haji, it's like, I want to survive and take care of my people. The exactly. The bear out after that uh, are sometimes out of my control, but exactly. it's more about surviving and protecting than it yeah. is killing and uh yeah well and again youth is uh an experience right? yeah yeah exactly and and that, that's how i felt i felt it's incumbent on me and some of the other combat vests to be there for these guys that just don't know so when you find out you're getting med boarded are you upset angry mad oh yeah i was pissed off depressed just everything hit me at once uh especially when when the letter comes in the mail and, you know, you read it said medically discharged. I was like, what the F? Like, I was like, really? And and in my head, I was thinking it was it was like, like anger, betrayal, all everything came out. You know, I'm like, I'm a I'm a like, you know, not patting myself on the back or anything, but I'm like, dude, I'm a, I'm a veteran. I'm a, I'm a combat vet that they're just willing to toss out. And they have these brand new guys and even brand new NCOs that haven't seen combat yet. And they have no idea what they're doing and you're kind of casting aside. And, and it wasn't just me. There was a lot of combat vets that I've learned over the years that did get medically discharged because they had injuries or whatever. And they felt the same thing. I'll never forget. I met a guy actually last year, I was up at uh, Yellowstone just you know on vacation with my family. And I met a guy who was a uh, part of the 82nd 
and he was med boarded too. And he gave me the story almost similar to mine. And even him, he, he was med boarded in 2009, I think it was. He told me, and, and he felt the same way I did. Like, really? Because of these, you know, injury, whatever, you felt that now we're, you know, essentially broke and we can't be part of the army anymore. So, th- so there was a lot of emotions that, that, you know, came through me. Yeah, you just you, that, that just means you needed to be a better liar. Uh, and not, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Wrong. That's, that's all yeah. that. Which, again, is a double edged sword because, yeah. again, I, I hit 24 years next month. Uh, and the things that I lied about are, are coming back to haunt me. And there's a part of me that wishes that I hadn't, that yeah. I had addressed my back issues, that I, I had gone to go look at certain things. And, four surgeries and everything later, my body, you know, feels like it's betraying me at this stage of my life. And, uh, you know, it's, it, that's the trade-off, right. Um, yeah. you know, and, and it's, it's not easy. It's not, you know, anything that, uh, I don't think you're right for one or wrong for the other. It, it, these are individual choices that we all make and we'll decide whether they are the right ones and the wrong ones in our own view. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, easy way to do it. Now, let me ask you in reference to, so when you find out you're getting med boarded, does that, in any way impact the survivor's guilt you're dealing with? Oh yeah. Cause, cause to me, uh, um, my mission was, wasn't done. You know, I, I, like to me, I saw death, you know, I looked at death right in the face. Um, and, and one of the medics, a friend of mine, he, he put it perfectly while we were overseas. He said, you know, damn, we play a, a game with a, a, a game of chess with death every day. We go outside that wire. Said, yeah, you know, it's whatever piece we move, that could be the checkmate, you know, no matter what. And and to me, that survivor's guilt is just that. It, it literally represents that moving that one piece that caused that checkmate. How how much uh, time elapses before you really start to tackle this the way it appropriately needed to be addressed? Ooh, not till. Uh, I told no, but uh, we'll say five years ago, actually, uh, Memorial day, five years ago, I, I had a, a incident really bad. Like that's when, and that's when it was like, you know what? I need to do something about this. I, I can't be like this. Would you like and, to on the incident? Um, it, it was, it was, uh, nothing crazy, crazy, but it was that moment of reflection to be like, you know what? Because well, what it was, I met up with a bunch of friends and then there were, uh, active duty Marines that were in Boston, uh, on leave. Uh, we were all at a bar together. Uh, one, one of the Marines just, uh, uh, became an NCO and it was myself, uh, another combat vet who was part of Deuce four up in Mosul. Um, and you know, they, they, you know, strike a brigade and they've seen all kinds of stuff and done all kinds of things. And, and we were just talking NCO to NCO with him and one thing led to another. And then all these memories between the both of us kind of flooded us. And again, that's the whole thing. Like yeah, alcohol and war memories don't, don't work well together. And it was at that moment where I had that crystallizing moment where I was like, you know, I'm pissed again. I, I can't be this way. You know, this, this can't be my go-to every time. And after that, I actually got serious about therapy, you know, versus going to the VA and getting your rainbow pills. And that's about it. Now, let's let's really dig into what's going on. And it was it, it's it's 
you know, when I started my therapy, it was one of those things where you think you're taking one step forward, but, but then you feel like you're taking three steps back because whatever emotions you had bottled up are now really coming out. And you're like, Holy crap. <laughs> Say it a thousand times over some days. I wish I never opened Pandora's box. It was comfortable. It was good where it was. And uh, yep. I had it nicely decorated and I never needed to bother with it uh, until you needed to bother with it. And then you bother yeah. with it. And you realize that uh, the box only looks good on the outside. Uh, and so yep. you struggle you know, with going back and forth, should I have ever even started this process? Because some days it doesn't feel like it's ever going to improve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I will say, you know, um, soldier to soldier, brother to brother, you know, I'm, I'm glad you were able to even, doesn't matter how long it took, you know, it took me better part of 15 years. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter. Uh, you're yeah. here um, and you're, you're, you're pushing forward and, and you're doing the right thing and taking care of you and, and, um, Look, all this stuff is it's it's a trickle down effect. It'll affect your your spouse, your kids, your family life, yep. your friends, your loved ones. I mean, it's it, you know, you don't realize the impact and the reach that it has until you truly start to understand what you're feeling and going through. Because, like, you know, not that I've ever been through a twelve step program, but you know, it's <laughs> one of the things where it's just like you, you don't realize how many people it, it touches. Yeah, you're yeah. just so insular, and you have such tunnel vision about what you're thinking and feeling. Um, that it, it has a much wider swath than, than, than you give it credit for. So I give credit to you for having the courage to finally um, do this because you could have kept banging your head into a wall and probably functioned fairly normal for the rest of your life. And nobody yeah. would have been wiser. Now, you would have been feeling different, but nobody on the outside would have been the wiser. Um, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Us, us, you know, combat vets, we're really good at masking it. Yeah. Really good. You know, I got really good at, you know, going through the day with this extreme anger but never really letting it out. Right. You know, you're just like, okay, you know, it's, it's kind of like one of those, like, you know, you, you got this wolf lion, whatever demon inside that just is itching to just get out and, you know, take care of business the way it should, or it feels that it should. And it, you know, it, it, it it's a ticking time bomb essentially, you know, and we do, we get really good at masking it. You know, even, even to this day, I get, you know, I'm still really good at, okay, you know, here we go, but really good at masking it. And, and like you said, you open up Pandora's box, it like, I, I had emotions. I never thought I had, <laughs> you know, uh, never thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, feelings, right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, best left unfelt. Some people would say, but that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you start dealing with all this stuff. I mean, you, listen, you, you wrote the column for Havoc Journal, uh, which was, again, very well done. Uh, it's dated back on March 6th. Uh, so if you guys want to go check it out, you know, just another perspective on everything that, that I'm in shared with me. But um, where are you now with all this stuff? I mean, how do you feel you're progressing or are we still struggling? Or are we still on the first couple of steps and we moved along? No, I'm, I'm actually, you know, in, in a really good spot where, you know, I'm not seeing my therapist weekly. Now it's monthly. And that's how I know I'm doing better and better, um, you know, because at first it was weekly. It was twice a week. Sometimes it was three times a week uh, because, you know, the, the therapist uh, and it was at the VA and the therapist felt that I needed that, which which kind of told me the gravity of my situation. I'm like, oh, really? And it got to the point where the conversation of me going away for a while is an option too. And I'm like, really, is it, am I that bad? But th- then she's like, no, no, it's not that you're, you're never bad. It's just, you know, I want to put options in front of you of what we can do 
to help. So, so to me, I'm like, well, in my head, I was still like, man, I am that bad, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but, but, you know, at first I told her, well, let's, let's see how I do. And then we'll decide. And, you know, later on, if I really need to go somewhere for a couple of weeks or a month or whatever. So uh, I, I know that you were medically discharged in 2008, but when does hybrid wolf blue line strategies come about? I mean, what did you do after? I mean, obviously you're in the guard, you have a civilian job somewhere, right? Um, so yeah. Was it, was so it in- I, I became a, I be, yeah, yeah. So I became a cop. Uh, and the reason was, uh, you know, again, it's that feeling of, you know, needing a purpose, right? I mean, when we come back home, it's like I was sitting in, I remember I was sitting in an office. Uh, I, I used to work at a doctor's office. I was doing psychology degree, all, all this stuff. And I was sitting there answering phones when I, you know, finally after like almost five month vacation, you know, I go back to work. And I'm sitting there and I'm answering phones. And I'm hearing some of the stupidest complaints I've ever heard in my life. And at that point, I'm like, yeah, this isn't for me. I mean, I was just doing freaking combat ops for, you know, a year or so. And I'm sitting here listening to mommy who isn't getting along with, with daughter and daughter needs a therapist as a result. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I, 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 don't, I can't keep doing this. And that's when I decided to become a cop. And uh, kind of gave me, kind of reignited that purpose in me. Good. Okay. So then when does uh, your own company come about? So I've been a cop for almost uh, 18 years now. And it it came about because I I see such a huge gap in training within the law enforcement community where you know, there's, there's a missing, there, there's some key missing elements in, in the training of law enforcement. And, it, you know, I go back to, I always say this to, to even, you know, like I'm a, I'm a range instructor, I'm a firearms instructor, and I do instructions all over the state and the country. And I always say the same thing. I said, you know, in the military, when the military gives you a piece of equipment, you study that piece of equipment until it becomes ingrained in you. And then after you study it, now you perform with it. In rain, cold, sleet, extreme stress, uh, all that stuff to make sure that now it's in your head that it becomes automatic, you know, when you react or when you do your thing. In policing, it's not that at all, you know. So, so in policing, it's just here's your firearm, here's a week with it, and that's it. You know, and, 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 or anything here's, you know, some defensive tactics. We'll do it for a couple of weeks. All right. You're good now. You know, they're just a lot of check the box type training um, that I also saw some similarities to that. Like they all of a sudden law enforcement took the approach of the army death by PowerPoint. Let's do everything by PowerPoint and just check the box, say that we did that training. Like to me, that, that isn't the way to do it. And to me, so what I ended up doing with hybrid wolf, hybrid wolf is, one, in one of my articles, I actually write the philosophy of hybrid wolf. It's just that, yeah, you have sheepdogs, you have the wolf, and then you have the guy in between the hybrid wolf. And I've always felt sheepdogs have their place because they, they do do a great job. Uh, you know, they're out there, they respond to threats appropriately, do what they got to do. The hybrid wolf hunts the threats. Right. Right. So I've always been the guy who you know, throughout my law enforcement career, I've had the privilege of working undercover, working in some pretty high speed task force type units um, that we hunt. We're not, we're not just waiting for the 911 call, you know, to, to get us moving. We're actually out there hunting and getting the bad guy before the murder happens or before 
the terrorist threat or, or whatever it might be, you know? So, so to me, that's the hybrid wolf. So he's, he's that, that guy or girl, even girl that is just ready, always training, always dedicating their time in the profession, the way they should be kind of like, you know, with, with SF and, and Rangers and some other units that, that I had the fortune, you know, being very fortunate to work with uh, just very, disciplined and dedicated to the job right and and that's the hybrid wolf is that's that's that guy he's he's the one in between you know and he's always the one where i you know i even say this like you know in a, in a hundred man department and you know how many do you think are proactive and you know cops laugh and they're like yeah maybe 10 percent. i'm like exactly 10 percent of the department is actually doing real police work while 90 percent is sitting around collecting the paycheck and what hybrid wolf is, is kind of tapping into that real training of stress inoculation uh, that we've done in the military. And now I'm bringing it to the law enforcement side. Now, SWAT teams, gang units, like we all do that, you know, the stress inoculation, because we have to, we have to be at that high speed ready, you know, tip of the spear sort of uh, work. Um, but I'm bringing it more to the everyday patrol officer. And that's what Hybrid Wolf essentially is, the, the, the company I created. Gotcha. Strange question. You have any connection to the Boston Marathon bomber guys, finding them and everything else? SWAT team. SWAT team? Okay. Right. Yeah, SWAT team. That, that, was... that area, so and you, everything you were just speaking about lends to those are the dudes that went to find that guy. <laughs> yeah, guys. yeah, that was, that, was, that was all. So uh, during that time, there was about 10,000 SWAT operators in Watertown hunting those guys. And and a lot of the guys who are uh, combat vets, the SWAT guys who are combat vets, did not stop till mission was over. And that's just the way we are. Like, you don't go home back to bed. I mean, I, I remember in Iraq, I've done operations where it was like 24 to 26 hours straight, you know. Yeah. And you, you you know how it is. You take your sleep when you can. Where Whether it's a five-minute, like two seconds, you close your eyes, and you're like, okay, I'm back. You know, and, and you just go do the job. Or you uh, eat. You know, I used to eat the uh, the Folgers grounds from MREs or Tabasco in the eye or whatever, you know, to keep me awake. But but that's tobacco. the thing. Wow, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do the Red Man and a uh, Marlboro. Yep, there you go. I, I used to do yep. the twofer. <laughs> yep, you're smoking a cigarette and chewing tobacco at the same time. You know, you need to yeah. be awake. Uh, yeah, exactly. Dentist, uh, dentist, favorite patient. There we go. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I, I mentioned at the top, and I wanted you to be able to talk, to talk about it. You're, you're in the process of writing a book, Resolute Path. Um, yeah. Give me the background on it, and, and yeah. why. Um, so I was talking to uh, Charlie, you know, from from Havoc, yep. and I told him uh, because through his, he has a foundation, Second Mission Foundation, that helps veteran entrepreneurs, you know, book writers, stuff like that, where you know he helps them get get stuff published and, and all that. So I was talking to him and I said, Hey, Charlie, wh what do you think if I take all the articles I've written? Cause I'm, I, I, I guess I'm, I didn't know this, but I guess I've written close to a hundred articles and I'm one of the top writers in Havoc. I had no idea. And I was like, what if I take all of that and turn it into a book and expand on everything, you know, in that book. And he said, that's a great idea. And at the time I didn't realize that, you know, second mission also publishes books, you know, how it does the publishing. So, uh, and I was like, all right, I mean, do you know any, I know, you know, you probably know, do you know any publishers or editors? He's like, yeah, me. I was like, really? I was like, yeah, yeah. I, he's like, yeah, that, this is what I do. I'm like, 
Oh, perfect. All right. Then let's get started. So, so it's, it's pretty much done, actually. Uh, it's on the final stages for print. Um, we're looking at the second week in April for it to come out, uh, like print out, you know, going to go. And and the, the reason why Resolute Path, like I picked that title, is just the story about, yes, it's a story about me growing up in, in war-torn uh, countries, coming home, going back to war and what that was like. And, and you know, and, and I said in the book, I said, this is not about the Ayman Kefel war story. I said, this is about finding your path and being resilient, whatever your path is, you know, whether you want to start a business, you want to do this, you don't want to do that. This is what this book's about. It's about being resilient in, throughout, throughout your life. And, you know, I gave the reason why I want to do it, like in, in that stance with my articles, because in my articles, I do talk a lot about that, whether it's law enforcement and militaries, I do talk about, you know, pushing through and doing, doing, you know, doing the job and doing what you have to do. Um, and that's essentially what the book is, is kind of like a, a guide, so to speak, for others, especially, you know, struggling veterans, uh, you know, brother, sister, struggling veterans, or even struggling law enforcement to be like, you know, uh, you know, just like Charlie says, find your second mission or find your res- your resolute path and just go. That's awesome. I, I, I'm looking forward to it, man. I'll absolutely get it uh, as soon as it comes out. Again, check out the article on Havoc Journal that I'm in wrote. Uh, it's it's worth it. And, and trust me, the pictures will bring uh, a lot of what you said together if, if, if uh, you, you need any more clarification, whether you're watching on a YouTube channel or even just listening anywhere you get the podcast. Go check out and go, go look at the pictures, and you'll you'll get a deeper appreciation for everything that that I'm had to say. Uh, look, it's uh, I'm thank you so much for taking the time to share more of this. You know, your yeah, words, absolutely. You know, your words, it, what was it? Three hundred, five hundred words, thousand words, maybe in that in that in that. Yeah, order. thousand thousand words. I mean, it's they were so impactful uh, enough for me to want to tell the deeper version of this story in a much longer form, and and I I thank you for sharing it with me because. Uh, Sometimes this stuff isn't easy, man. No matter how many times you peel the Band-Aid off and, and look at the wound, sometimes it, uh, the Band-Aid sticks a little bit harder and it grabs a little bit more of the scab and or the skin. Yep. You, you get the whole metaphor. It's just uh, yep. it's never easy. But I thank you. And listen, you know, best of, of success in your personal journey and continued luck and, and good fortune and keep grinding away at it, man. Uh, we'll be whole again one day. Uh, or or yep. a new whole. But it, it doesn't. It doesn't ever. You know, it's a it's a journey, not a destination, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I wish you. I wish you the best of luck with that, and and best of luck with Resolute Path, the book. Again, check it out, and of course, um, they can they can get in touch with you if they wanted to. And, and I, Hybrid Wolf Blue Line Strategies. You Google it, you'll find it. Um, yeah, it's easy to find. But again, man, uh, honesty, compassion, empathy, all that you exuded it all, brother. I certainly appreciate it. I appreciate it, Mark. Uh, anytime. And uh, also same brother to brother, you know, we're cut from the same cloth and, uh, you know, we're just, like you said, it's a journey. Absolutely is. I'm a Cafel. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. <laughs> All right. Thanks, bud. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.